Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Steventon Rectory. So as we promised at the end of our last episode, we'll be doing some occasional episodes where the thing in question is much more directly related to Jane Austen's personal biography, possibly digging into her letters more and her publication history, because there's definitely some really juicy stuff in there. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) But we want to say right off the top that we are in no way attempting to provide a comprehensive biography, and certainly not with this first episode, if that's what you think that you're signing up for. There are so many wonderful and well-researched full-length Austin biographies out there, and that's where I would send somebody who's really wanting to go deep. A few easy-to-access favorites of mine are Claire Tomlin's Jane Austen, A Life, Paula Burns's The Real Jane Austen, A Life in Small Things, and Lucy Worsley's Jane Austen at Home, which was an essential source for today's episode, so that'll be coming up quite a bit. But that is truly just a smattering of what is out there. That being said, we're starting off with a high-level overview of her time growing up at Steventon Rectory, And to keep us focused, we're going to mainly be discussing the rectory itself, what it was like growing up there, and just the general environment. And we're pulling information from quite a few sources today, ranging from accounts from Austin's family members to more current biographies, including the ones already mentioned. So just a note on that, it's pretty widely accepted by modern historians and scholars that a lot of the remembrances and biographical information regarding Jane that we have from her descendants, particularly James Edward Austin Lee, were definitely influenced by what was, at the time, a very Victorian desire for a nostalgic, rose-tinted look back at Jane's life. (laughs) Part of this coming from a desire to give her an image makeover as this, you know, quiet spinster who never sought fame or fortune and who lived an appropriately genteel life out in the bucolic countryside. (laughs) So just always keep that in the back of your mind. And obviously, with anything like this, regardless of the source we're dealing with, it's always a bit of a guessing game, since we weren't actually there, And especially since the house in question that we're discussing today, Steventon Rectory, has been gone for 200 years. Yeah, it it definitely presents its own unique challenges. (laughs) So before we get into the rectory itself, let's kind of set the scene in some just broad, basic biographical facts about Jane Austen in case you're kind of new to her biography. So Jane Austen was born at Steventon Rectory in Steventon, Hampshire on December 16th, 1775 to George and Cassandra Austen. Her father, George, was a clergyman in the Church of England and a rector of Dean and then later Steventon in Hampshire. The rectories were actually only about a mile apart and the total population of the two the whole, of those two communities was only about 300 people. So it's not a massive population, but it's one that he was he was in charge of two different parishes. The Austens initially lived in Dean, but in 1771, they moved to Steventon, and that's, and that's where Jane Austen was born. And she was the seventh of eight children, so a big family. When Jane was 25, her father retired, leaving Steventon and moving to Bath with Jane, her mother, and her older sister, Cassandra. And again, there's obviously like way more to cover than this, including the fact that Jane and Cassandra had time at boarding school. But again, we're keeping our focus really narrow today, and we're deliberately not getting into too much of the details also about how like livings for clergymen operated this time, because we have a whole future episode planned around the topic, and Mr. Collins is going to love it. It will really just be an homage to Mr. (laughs) Collins. And we hope that Lady Catherine will approve. We really need her patronage. (laughs) For just a bit of detail as to George Austen's living at Steventon Rectory, since it does factor into Jane's upbringing, we have this quote from Lucy Worsley in her book, Jane Austen at Home, which I think does a good job of both providing a sense of place and of providing some of that financial context. So Worsley says, As the Austens traveled into Steventon in 1768, the land and the fields around them were going to be just as important as the house. 
Steventon Parish was three miles long and three quarters of a mile wide. The living included the rectory itself and glebe lands of three acres that were to be farmed specifically for the maintenance of the parish priest. In Steventon, the former common fields of the village had been enclosed and made into private farms. This meant that George wouldn't have to go through the arduous business of collecting his tithes in kind from each individual family. He would just take 10% in money from the profits of his farmer neighbors. The fact that he collected his tithes directly rather than via a landowner was what made Mr. Austin a rector rather than a plain parson. But the business of the tithes did mean that his fortunes were still very closely tied to those of the land. So you can kind of see there again, like, this is a family that for all intents and purposes, I mean, they're kind of farmers, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, <laughs> like the, the the work that's going on in the neighbor's farms as well as their own is actually very crucial to the way that they that they function on a daily basis. And like Zan said, we'll unpack more about livings in the future, but I think that description is a good introductory overview for where to start. And in addition to the Glebe land, Jane's father also leased Cheese Down Farm, best name ever, <laughs> which the family was able to farm for food and profit. Cheese Down, I like it. If you aren't going to have like the finest dairy herd for, for miles around with a name like Cheese Down Farm, I just, come on. Get out of business after that, exactly. right? <laughs> just heirloom cheddar, as far as the eye can see. I would like to visit now that you've given that kind of overview. <laughs> so now let's give a little bit more concrete detail about the rectory itself. To do this, I'm going to be kind of pulling a little bit from Nigel Nicholson's book, The World of Jane Austen. And he describes the parsonage as having two parlors and a kitchen a private study for the vicar, and 10 bedrooms above, three of them in the attics. And to our modern sensibilities, it seems like a really large house. But remember that the Austins had a large family. They also had servants, although it was essentially a country farmhouse. And so those servants didn't always live in like they would have in a townhouse or a large estate. But they would certainly have been coming in and out during the day, depending on the work in question. And we also know that Mr. Austin took on pupils to supplement his income on a regular basis. And those pupils actually boarded with the Austins. So, I mean, it sounds like a big house, but really, it was very full and very busy. <laughs> so, Austin's niece, Anna Lefroy, actually described the setup of the house as well. And we get this, we get this from her, her writing, and here's her perspective on it. She says, The dining or common sitting room looked to the front and was lighted by two casement windows. On the same side, the front door opened into a smaller parlor, and visitors, who were few and rare, were not a bit the less welcome to my grandmother's house because they found her sitting there busily engaged with her needle, making and mending. In later times, they had a sitting room made upstairs, the dressing room, as they were pleased to call it, perhaps because it opened to a smaller chamber in which my two aunts slept. I remember the common-looking carpet with its chocolate ground and painted press with shelves above for books and Jane's piano, and an oval-looking glass that hung between the windows. But the charm of the room, with its scanty furniture and cheaply painted walls, must have been, for those old enough to understand it, the flow of native wit, with all the fun and nonsense of a large and clever family. I love, I love that little kind of intimate look into the daily life. Yeah, we're getting the sense of like, you know, it's a little bit boisterous. There's a lot going on. And the house itself maybe isn't that much to look at. This is, I mean, like they've, they've nailed shabby chic, right? Like this is, yeah, exactly. this is the aesthetic they were going for. The community of Steventon was small and fairly remote. Worsley describes it as a straggling community with a maple tree on the village green serving as a meeting point for gossip and news. The rectory sitting as the last house in the village at the junction of Church Walk and Frog Lane. Frog <laughs> Those Lane, are fantastic. And with smaller cottages scattered about. Didger LeFay similarly describes the house as at the end of a small village of about 14 cottages scattered along either side of the lane, which linked the Austins to Dean in one direction and to North Waltham in the other. 
The house had a gravel sweep or carriage drive. So the house wasn't situated directly on the road, which is very important, you know, if you're trying to be like genteel, right. you know, yeah. you don't want your house like right in the ditch. <laughs> and it was a three-story structure with two additional wings projecting off at the back. Geographically speaking, the rectory was situated in a valley surrounded by sloping meadows and trees, which while that sounds super picturesque and like something that Marion Dashwood would be really into, <laughs> really into. <laughs> the valley setting meant that the house had problems with flooding. So it was like a mm, little bit damp, yeah. which is not a very pleasant thing. <laughs> It was also a house that had been built up and added to over time, with some evidence that the site was inhabited as early as the 14th century. However, the house that Jane Austen occupied would have largely originated from the late 17th century. So evidently, it was quite the mix of architectural styles and materials, like a little bit higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> Can I just say, I love that phrase, higgledy-piggledy. Like, it's just like... Higgledy-piggledy. It's gorgeous. And I think it very aptly describes this. <laughs> so we actually know that the rectory was pulled down in the 1820s, and... It kind of then like literally fell off the map in a lot of ways. And so what's kind of cool about this is that in 2011, there was an excavation of the Steventon Rectory site. And there were actually a lot of recovered artifacts and things like that that kind of give us a glimpse into the daily life. But it also then literally puts it back on the map because there was actually a little bit of doubt as to where the location was. So previously, we didn't really know for sure the location of the house. The only kind of like landmark that we had to kind of get a, a feel for where this was, was that there was this water pump, this like well and water pump, like in the middle of a field. And it was like, that was the only landmark that we had for Steventon Rectory for quite a long time. I, I think also part of the confusion is that when the original Steventon Rectory was pulled down, a new rectory was built, but they smartly built it on higher ground. So there's kind of like that, oh... I think just like over time, that definitely adds to the confusion because it's like, right. oh, well, then there was another house. Was it in the same site? No, it was on higher ground. You know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. And we actually have like conflicting images and things like that about of what the rectory looked like and things like that. So it's it's been it's been wonderful to be able to kind of like do some geophysical scanning and start the excavation and really get kind of a recovery of the site. In addition to that, again, um, we did recover some artifacts like metal and ceramic and glass that really kind of help us identify some of the day-to-day -day use of things like, uh, like, like china and storage jars at the rectory. So it's, it's this wonderful historic kind of rediscovery of Austin's, of Austin's home. So according to Debbie Charlton, who was the project director of this 2011 excavation of the Steventon Rectory site, through the excavation process, they were able to see its size, exact location, and place it more precisely into the landscape. So I just love that quote, like precisely yes. into the landscape. <laughs> and based on this information, it was determined by scholars that the house most resembled the illustration published in the memoirs by James Edward Austin Lee, which I'm sure will end up on our Instagram. So you guys will all have a chance to see that. <laughs> and maybe the water pump, if you're lucky. <laughs> Well, and we also know that the house contained two parlors on the ground floor, Mr. Austin's study, and two kitchens, one for cooking and the other mostly like a pantry for storage or light cooking, like making tea. And despite Anna Lafroy's recollection of the front door opening directly into a parlor, the evidence from this 2011 excavation indicates that there was actually a long hallway or passage that ran the length of the house from the front to back. So you could actually walk from the front door all the way back to the gardens. And so that's a little bit different from the, the narrative that Anna Lafroy gave us. I mean, how ready for like social media is that? Like, Oh, right? From the front door all the way to the garden. Gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. You could do a lot with that. That's content. right. That's right. I mean, get your clawed glass, my friend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, the Austins leased a farm, but the immediate rectory property also had cultivated gardens with a variety of vegetables and fruit trees. There was also a poultry yard, a brew house, a granary, and other assorted outbuildings typical for a country household of this size. 
Again, there were a few maids and manservants to help with the work, but Mrs. Austin was definitely in full command of her domain. Like, <laughs> this was not the kind of household where the family had nothing to do with the daily running of things. In her book, Jane Austen's Country Life, which I also strongly recommend for these kind of little details, Deidre Le Fay talks of Mrs. Austen running her own dairy farm and supervising the walled gardens where flowers, strawberries, cucumbers, vegetables, and soft fruit trees were all grown together in the gardens and bees kept to provide honey, wax, and mead. I love that. Those details are just perfect. I mean, that does sound charming. Mm -hmm. It really does. There's also this really funny story, well, funny to me, about Mrs. Austin taking up potato cultivation, which were apparently considered a bit of a foreign vegetable in Hampshire at this time, and then recommending to one of the wives in the village that she should also grow potatoes. And the response from the villager was, no, no, they are very well for you gentry, but they must be terribly costly to rear. (laughs) Which is just also like mind blowing because you realize that like in the 1800s, early 1800s, in Ireland, right across the way, you know, it's a subsistence crop for a third of the country. And so like, no, no, you gentry, you keep those potatoes to yourself. Whereas in Ireland, it's completely different. Yeah, down here in Hampshire, it's just like, (laughs) what? (laughs) A potato? So I don't know if you all know that Diane has a phobia of or or just just a flat out hate of Mr. Collins and boiled potatoes because it doesn't happen (laughs) in the text. Okay, let me, okay, let's, let's, let's clarify before we get emails. I love it. Yes. I think it's like genius script writing. So good. I love, I love the line in the film. And the character delivers. I mean, the actor yes. delivers. It is perfect. But the number of times that I have seen that quote on Etsy, like on a mug or a t-shirt, <laughs> credited to Jane Austen, I just. It's nails on a chalkboard for Diane. <laughs> it, just a, a little bit, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying I don't realize that I'm being like a, like completely pedantic about this. I'm just, I, I can't help it. It's who I am. But that being said, I think I think that this this extra potato content, I mean, there's meme material here, Diane. Like it just it just deserves to be here. You guys think it's all about Mr. Collins and his potatoes in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice <laughs> adaptation? Okay, the real Jane Austen potato content is her mom going around the village trying to convince everybody that they should really get into growing potatoes. <laughs> That's the truth right there. Excellent boiled <laughs> potatoes quote mrs austin not jane austen (laughs) exactly (laughs) there we're gonna we're gonna put out some merch on etsy now that corrects all this so so getting back to kind of some of the daily life that we have going on at steventon rectory for the family so we've already kind of established the family wasn't super wealthy but they had enough to get education for the girls even though that was somewhat limited um and they did have actually a decent library they had over 500 volumes in their family library which is actually like very substantial. I mean, books are very expensive at this time. And so the fact that there's that many in the library, first of all, that shows that um, that George Austin is very, very dedicated to his own education. And then he allowed Jane and Cassandra to have full access to the library as well, which is not a given for girls in this time period. Um, a lot of times there was a lot more supervision over what they could and could not read. But Austin had full access, which I think just, you know, speaks loudly to the way that this this family operated. I mean, you don't want girls to read the wrong books because their brains might boil, Zan. What are you? I mean, come on. Everybody knows that. Or they'll read Byron and then they'll just become scandalous women. You know, like it's 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 a, it's a fraught kind of navigation through libraries at this time. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, you know, that's kind of that's kind of what Austin is making fun of in, in Northanger Abbey, right? It's just that, you know, like the, the way that culture seems to view women's capability to read novels at this time. So she's she's definitely viewing this from her own perspective and her own access to the library. We also have another kind of literary connection um, for her um, in terms of her inspiration for her work, where the Austin family also really loved to do family theatricals at Steventon. So of course, you should be thinking Mansfield Park here. 
And the Austins were like apparently very into these productions. <laughs> Additionally, the Austins would have been a central part of their community. So Steventon Rectory was part of the estate for the Steventon Manor House. The Knights, who had given the living to George Austin, owned the estate but didn't live in the manor house when Austin lived there, but instead leased it to the Digweed family. The Austins and Digweeds were on good terms, and Jane often mentioned the Digweed family in her letters. So, you know, definitely like a good flow of interaction mm -hmm. going back and forth between the rectory and the big house, as it were. Yeah, and again, we see that in a lot of her novels as well. And we also know that Austin visited a lot of other families and people in the, reg in the region as well. And this is perhaps best demonstrated and described in, her le in a letter that she writes to Cassandra in October of 1800. And I'm, I'm going to read it. It's kind of a larger passage, but it just it gives such a wonderful insight into her daily life. So here's, here's the quote. We have been exceedingly busy ever since you went away. On Thursday, we walked to Dean. Yesterday, to Oakley Hall. We did a great deal. Eat some sandwiches all over mustard. Admired Mr. Bramston's porter and Mrs. Bramston's transparencies, and gained promise from the latter of two roots of heartsies, one all yellow and the other all purple for you. At Oakley, we bought ten pair of worsted stockings and a shift. This morning, we called at the Harwoods, and in their dining room found Heathcote and Shute forever, Mrs. William Heathcote and Mrs. Shute, the first of whom took a long ride yesterday morning with Mrs. Harwood into Lord Carnarvon's park and fainted away in the evening, and the second walked down from Oakley to Steventon afterwards. And I realize that that's actually a really, really dense paragraph, but like there's a lot going on there. I just love her description. I mean, this is just kind of day to day, like visiting neighbors. I mean, first of all, I love that she's like, we ate mustard sandwiches, delicious. <laughs> and I think probably one of my, one of my favorite details in here is that they had to admire Mr. Bramston's porter. Like they had, a, I don't know, like I just imagine him being like, check out my beer. Isn't it great? And they're like, great, Mr. Bramston. But I mean, like, I mean, like, there's also a lot of like, there's the mustard sandwiches, there's the transparencies, there's the flowers that they're picking up, the worst stockings, a shift, like there's so much going on here in just like her daily tangible life. And this is such a vivid picture of that, as well as obviously her like trademark social commentary where she's like, yeah, got to admire the beer. Then this person like fainted away. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's so just, it's, it's perfection. It's this beautiful little snapshot of her life. In addition to all of these great visits with the neighbors, <laughs> Austin also attended balls. These would have been very much like the Meriton Ball in Pride and Prejudice. Austin mentions in her letters the Basingstoke Assembly Balls, and Deidre Le Fay notes in her topographical index to Austin's letters that Basingstoke was, at this time, a market town and important staging post nine miles northeast from Steventon, with the balls held in the upper rooms of the town hall. And when Austin would attend these events, she would generally stay with her friends Elizabeth, Catherine, and Althea Big, who lived at Manydown Park, about six miles from Steventon. And if that name sounds a little bit familiar, mm -hmm. yes, it's that family. <laughs> Their brother Harris Bigwither and Jane were engaged for a single evening. You know, as we always say, stay tuned for a future episode. <laughs> So all in all, we get a sense of quite a busy upbringing, lots of siblings, her father's students coming and going, and just generally a very active household. But it's, it's also important to mention that while this upbringing was far from impoverished, yeah. it was, as Lucy Worsley puts it, still just a bit of a struggle. The Austins aimed not at a luxurious lifestyle, but at elegance, neatness, and sufficiency. So they were always sort of trying to maintain this level of gentility that they didn't quite have the income for. Like they had a carriage for a period of time, but then had to give it up because they couldn't afford to keep it. Again, definitely much wealthier than a farm laborer or servant of this time, but certainly at the lower end of the gentry we see depicted in her novels. Yeah, and especially with a big family that becomes more tangible, I think. 
Yeah. She is not cruising around with her 20,000 pound dowry right. or anything That's like right. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you're wondering too why this home is so important to understanding Austin in general, it's actually first and foremost because this is where Austin spent the first 25 years of her life and where she started writing as a young girl before going on to write Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and Northanger Abbey. So even though she published her first novel, Sense and Sensibility, in 1811, that's 10 years after she left Steventon. But this is also, you know, she wrote the real kind of substance of these novels while she was there at the rectory. This is clearly a really formative time in her life, especially since she was 25 years when she left. And at that point, that's, that's more than half of her lifetime. So the daily rhythms of this household and the way that this kind of the rectory worked, the type of social engagements that she would have had access to, all of this makes its way into her novels in a lot of very tangible ways. And we're not going to like do a detailed list because I feel like that's basically the entire podcast. Pretty like, much. Every episode, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, because it is like so much of her life yeah. in her novels. Mm-hmm. But um, a few of like a couple just very specific ways that we see you know, especially like rectories popping up. Obviously, many a parsonage, vicarage, rectory, etc. come up in all of her novels in, you know, in some form or another, whether as a dwelling of a secondary character or as a home of a marriageable hero. Always important consideration. Well, and I think part of the reason that that is is because they are part of this, like, you know, we see with her her um, establishment of the Steventon Rectory that it's literally the center of the community in a lot of ways. And so it makes sense that it's going to pop up in all of her novels. And it was also not an uncommon sort of job or establishment for a gentleman of this time to have. So, you know, if you're looking for marriageable heroes and we can't all be running Pemberley. Like (laughs) one of my favorite little kind of scenes with a rectory or a vicarage in Emma, there's that whole delightful scene where Emma is scheming to get Harriet and Mr. Elton together. And as they pass the vicarage, she says, there it is. There go you and your riddle book one of these days. And Harriet responds, (laughs) Oh, what a sweet house. How very beautiful. There are the yellow curtains that Miss Nash admires so much. And I just love that because like, I love Harriet. And you just know, like, you know, she heard this Miss Nash admiring those curtains. And she's kind of like, oh, I wish those were my yellow curtains. (laughs) It's so adorable. And then, of course, you know, later in that chapter, Emma breaks her own bootlace and manages to get them invited into the house, like into the inner sanctum. (laughs) And Elton is just like so eager to show them around and be like, yes, this is my establishment. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I just love that. And and like Zan said, in terms of the day-to-day functions of a household in a community like this and just, you know, the social interactions, we just, we see that in all of her books. In every one of them, really. Yeah. And as an extra little tidbit here, um, in the 2007 film, Becoming Jane, the location that they used for the rectory is actually Higginsbrook House, and that's located in, in Ireland. It's this actually like gorgeous little house that that they decided this is the location that we're going to do because they were already filming in Ireland. So they wanted like a perfect Steventon rectory. So they chose Higginsbrook House. And another kind of tidbit about that is that Jeffrey Lefroy, a direct descendant of Jane Austen's supposed and greatly disputed love, <laughs> Tom Lefroy, he appears as an extra in Becoming Jane. So, so there's kind of some, some Irish connections there. It all is coming full circle. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Higginsbrook House is also actually used as Catherine Moreland's home in the 2007 adaptation of Northanger Abbey. So we get this, it's almost becoming like Austin film canon to use Higginsburg House as <laughs> right? as a rectory at this point. Add it on to your literary tourism itinerary. I mean, it, it is privately owned. So unfortunately, it's not one of those houses where you can just like buy a ticket and, and walk That's around. True. But I guess like the current owners, you know, basically they had, at least when they did Becoming Jane, like the interiors were all sort of repainted. Mm-hmm. And I think they did make things look a little bit shabbier, like a little bit more shabby chic <laughs> and, and all of that. So 
Well, and again, you know, by, by having it be in two different films, it's like, you know, if you, if you ever need to do another Regency era rectory home, you know, like. With like a lot of kids and a big family. Right. Put me on speed dial. That's that's Higginsburg yep. House. <laughs> Higginsburg House is where it's at, <laughs> for sure. So again, a really high level introduction in this episode. And we definitely do encourage, like very much encourage any interested listeners to seek out a full length biography. Some of those biographies are also available as audiobooks, right? Yes. So if you're somebody who is interested in the audio format, which as you were listening to a podcast, you probably are, <laughs> um, you can definitely find most of those on audiobook and, you know, listen to them that way. So that's a hot tip for you all. That's right. <laughs> um, and as I feel like we always say, many things touch upon in this episode will eventually get their own episodes. So, mm-hmm. you know, stay tuned. Have no fear. That's right. We'll get there eventually. We have a very long list. We do. <laughs> And you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. If you are a fan of the show, we would love for you to tell a friend and maybe hit that five stars button mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a positive review. You know, I like how I said like maybe, but actually like pretty please. Yes. <laughs> We're not above asking. Exactly. <laughs> we say it every week, but that truly is a huge help to us. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we're very excited to be bringing in another guest. We have musicologist Dr. Lydia Chang coming in to talk to us about Mary Crawford's heart. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.